Good morning, everybody. If you are new with us here this morning, yes, I always sound this incredibly manly. And you get to enjoy it today. Our key scripture this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. I'll be reading it here for you this morning. From Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had begun weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Let's be completely honest with one another. This is a very strange scenario. The whole thing is sort of weird. I mean, they all come together. Someone reads from the book of law pretty much all day. Then it's explained to them what it means. And then they all, as one or like people are like to do in that situation, begin weeping together. And they're actually told that they need to go home and be happy. So they go home and they're happy. It's a strange story, isn't it? Well, it might seem a little bit weird, but let me explain to you the context. The people of Israel had been completely defeated. They had turned away from God, and as a consequence of that, God had allowed other nations to come in and take them over. And slowly the nation of Israel began to shrink as parts of their lands were taken away, as parts of their people were conquered. Eventually, this reached the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the nation. And their walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, and they were all taken off into exile. And and for a generation, they had been away in exile. They had married people from another country. They had lost sight of who they are. They had become slaves and foreigners in another place. And that was their story. And then Nehemiah, with some help from Ezra, was allowed to go back to Jerusalem. 
And he was allowed to take a group of people with him. And they went back and they rebuilt the wall and they restored the temple. And this passage that we just read was the first time that they all gathered together to hear the word of God. In over a generation. And they hear all of the things that God had said to them and they begin to cry. Why? Why did they begin to cry? It was for this one very important reason. They had lost their story. And in that one morning, they found it again. They were no longer slaves and foreigners and people without a home. They were no longer people who had no hope or joy. Instead, they discovered in this one probably really long reading that they were the people of God. And that God had promises for them. And that if they followed Him and gave themselves to Him, that God would bless them and make them His people once again. And church, it overwhelmed them to rediscover their story. We cannot underestimate the importance of knowing that we are a part of something of knowing that we are a part of a meaningful story, a story that is bigger than just what we did today, where we went to lunch, what we accomplished at work. And in that one magic moment, slaves and refugees discovered that they were not forsaken and abandoned, homeless and used up. Instead, they discovered they were the people of God. And in that moment of clarity, they knew who they were again. Which makes me wonder about us. What is the story that we are a part of? All right. Some of you have met my father. Um, My dad's name is Lee Smith. He wears a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and presses his Wranglers. I think I think he still presses his Wranglers. But uh, one thing you will discover upon talking to my dad is that my dad likes to tell stories. He really, really likes to tell stories. Um, and he takes joy out of telling stories of all different kinds. Let me give you an example. My father uh, started out as a meter reader for PG&E many, many, many years ago. And then he started working in an office at PG&E. And then he retired And it was the worst few years of my life. When my father retired, I was still at home in high school. And when we went to college, my sisters and I, my dad went back to work as a meter reader through a hiring hall. And so this is what he did. He was, I don't know how old was he at that time. He's going to be 80 this year. So he was roughly, you know, 60. They sent him out to all these rural routes outside of Fresno. So he actually drove down to a little town called Dinuba, And he would work out of Dinuba and he'd go to all of these vineyards. He'd drive up to the mountains and find this one meter that's like out in the middle of a field. It was it was heaven for him. 
He was so happy doing it. And so when we would get together as a family and my dad was working, we would ask him a question such as, Dad, where did you go today? And this is how my dad would answer. Well, I got in my truck and there was still frost on the windshield. But warmed up pretty quick, though, and I headed out towards Devil Rock. You know where Devil's Rock is. It's right next to Angel's Canyon. And I turned right at the Old Stone Olive Orchard. You know which one that is also. And I waved hello to Dave. He's always out there at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he would go on and on and on about just how he got to where he went. This is all we wanted to know, is where he went. And he told us in great detail about how we got there. Why? Because my father loves to tell stories. His favorite stories, however, surface when he gets around some of his old friends that he went to school with. Um, my uh, father went to school with a man named Landon Saunders, who uh, was a was is a preacher. And when they were both in college together, they would uh, in the South they would drive around to different small churches, and Landon would preach at the churches, and my dad would lead the singing. And um, that sounds like a really sweet and innocent thing for them to do. And yet, however, they managed to get into trouble over and over again as they were doing these things. And they both swear that on one of these trips, they hit a chicken. (laughs) And that when they got back to the school to check if there was any damage to the car, there was a whole unbroken egg in the grill. They will look you in the eye and they will tell you this is true. But you should see my father when he gets to tell these stories. And it's funny, we were, we were at something, I think it was last year, and, and Landed started to tell one of these stories and my dad jumped in there and took it over. And he went into his storytelling voice, which, you know, he normally talks like this, but his storytelling voice, well, you know, this is more like how it happened. And there's almost like a cadence even to the way that he tells a story. I think in general, it is a fair statement to say that we all love stories in some shape or form. And in general, we particularly love a story that involves us. As long as it's not a story that is embarrassing or makes us look silly in some sort of way. But think about it this way. Stories play a really important role in how we understand and engage our world. Some of the highest paid people in our society are those who are paid to write, produce, and act out stories for our consumption. So that at the end of the day or when we have time during the day, we can sit down and unplug from our own lives and immerse ourselves in a story that someone else is telling. And the more engaging the story, the more people are drawn in. The more people are drawn in, the more successful it is. The more successful it is, the more money they make. And so we value in our society very highly good storytellers. They matter. We want good stories. Stories that tell us crazy things. Stories that we can relate to. Stories that are about things we've never dreamed of. And stories that remind us of how we grew up. 
We want all of these different kinds of things. And if you spend any time talking with one another or maybe having someone over to your house for dinner, you ask them, where did you grow up? What did you do? What were your parents like? We all have stories. We have stories about growing up, about meeting our spouses, about having children, memorable experiences, events that formed us, events that were simply funny. And maybe you've never considered this before, but it is actually through narrative through story that we remain tied to our past, engaged in our present, and we project into the future. It is through story that we do that. Which tells us something very important about ourselves. And that is this. We all want a story. We all want to be part of a story, We all want a story to tell. We all want to be able to share who we are, what we're doing, who we will become in a way that draws people in and is engaging. Now, as I mentioned to the kids this morning, we are all part of a really big, sweeping, ongoing story. It is a story that began with time itself, and it is a story that continues into eternity. And because the story is so big, it is. Because the story is so big, I feel like sometimes, as a person living right now in this little town, living what sometimes feels like this little life, I lose connection to my part in the big story. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. When your days all kind of look the same, you get up and go to work and you do this and what are we having for dinner and then we go to bed and then we get up and then we do that, da, 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 da. When it all looks the same, it is so easy to forget that we are part of the story. And so what do we do? We seek out experiences that add something to the narrative that is our everyday life. We go on vacations. Uh, more and more people are looking for things to do and and, and places to go, and we pick up all these different things because we all want to be part of a story. And God's story is so big, we can, we can paint with the broadest of brushes in order to tie ourselves into God's story. God created humanity. Humanity separated itself from God. God redeemed humanity. God will take his children home. And that is the story that we are a part of, Right? It's such a very big story. But where do we see ourselves at this place, this time, this church, within this really big story? I mean, we know that we are connected to it. But do we feel like we're connected to it? What is our role in this some 2,000 years after Jesus? Well, we're going to look to the Bible this morning to help us understand that. Uh, But to help us pull ourselves into the narrative a different way, we are going to learn from a very important image from Scripture that you see from the very beginning to the very end. We are going to learn from trees. So this morning, we are going to explore the biblical history of trees. Yes? Trees. Trees are such an important part of our world. 
and yet I hardly ever spend any time thinking about them. I like them because they look nice or offer shade. I know that they are important because they release oxygen into the air. I know that much of our food is due to plants and all of these other things. But rarely do I stop and admire a tree and never have I written a poem about a tree such as this one. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow is lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Are you familiar with that? I heard some of you saying it. I've never been inspired to write a poem about a tree. But here is a point, the point. There is a wonder to trees that I fail to recognize because I have become so accustomed to them being around me all the time. There is a significance that I tend to overlook. But if I want to better understand, and I know this sounds weird, If I want to better understand my part in the story of God, guess what I need to better understand? Trees. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, describes a person who follows God like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together this morning. Father, we want to see our part in the story that you are telling. We want to know what it is that that we are living and why Our lives matter. So will you help us to see this story that we have heard so many times, if possible, Father, with new eyes, with the freshness that can only come from our listening to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So maybe you've never noticed it or thought about it before. Um... But the imagery of trees is massively important to the story of the Bible. And trees are everywhere in the Bible. So let's take a look at their history. So from the very beginning of God's relationship with man, trees played a central role to the story that God was telling. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They sustain themselves by eating from the trees in the garden, but the account points out that there are two two trees in particular that we need to pay attention to. They are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Have you ever asked yourself why these two particular ideas, life and the knowledge of good and evil, were represented by trees? Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a weird thought. It is fascinating to think that as the story of creation was being told, that life itself and the knowledge of good and evil are represented by things that are growing and alive, that produce something, that give shade, that are pleasing to look at. Not only that, but you can eat from them, you can ingest them, and you can take part in them. And in fact, that sort of, as you know, leads to the downfall of man because it is the willful, disobedient eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge that drove a wedge between humanity and God. But from the very beginning, these two concepts, God creates life, is represented by what? A tree. And the knowledge of good and evil is represented by a tree. And they leave Eden, and the image that comes to mind is almost they're going to have to work the land. Things are going to be dry and dusty. It's going to be hard. Why? Because there aren't all these trees around anymore. The imagery is important. We don't have to look much further for trees to play another important role. Man moves so far away from God that by the time Noah rolls around in the early chapters of Genesis, God is already ready to wipe the slate clean. And so he calls Noah to build the ark and he floods the earth. And Noah is spending all this time on this boat with all these animals waiting for God to finish flooding the earth. And what God has promised him is that there will be a new start. There will be new life. There will be a new place. And how does God choose to give this back To Noah, with a branch from a tree, right? Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Okay, so Noah wants to know if life is starting again on earth. And so he sends out these birds, right? And they don't have anywhere to come. But finally, he sends out the dove and the dove brings back an olive leaf, which tells Noah what? There is land. Yes, but something more important than that. We've overlooked this. There is life on the land. What God has promised him, the renewal of The earth, this starting over, is now in effect because he gets a leaf from an olive tree. Well, Bryce, you're reaching, okay? I mean, how can a leaf represent all this? Well, it's because it doesn't really stop there. Uh, Throughout the Psalms, for example, trees are important. 
And when the psalmist was looking to describe just how strong and mighty and powerful God was, guess what image he used? A tree, and not just any tree, but a specific tree. The cedars of Lebanon. Which, it's one of those things when you read through the Psalms and you read the cedars of Lebanon, it's like, super. But it comes up again and again. And then I start to wonder at least, what are these? So here's an example from Psalm 104, starting in verse 16. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home, and the junipers. Now, trees, and in particular the cedars of Lebanon, were something that, that the writer again used when they wanted to speak, speak of strength or value and to show how God was more powerful uh, than other things around him. And, and here's why that image worked at that time. Ancient demand for cedar was raised to a fever pitch for a very significant reason. The two dominant civilizations at that time, Egypt and Mesopotamia, had virtually no wood at all. So they did not have trees. And this was especially in true in Egypt where the main tree that they had was a palm tree. But you can't build stuff from the wood of a palm tree. It falls apart. And it's too grainy and it won't stay together. And the only other substantial growth, the acacia tree, produced boards in their total length that were only about three feet long. And so you couldn't get really long pieces of wood from those trees. So the Mesopotamians could float wood down the Tigris and Euphrates from the mountains in the north, which we now know as Turkey. But the Egyptians were essentially dependent upon the Phoenicians for their cedar. And so if you needed wood, you had to go to them. If you wanted to build something that would last. And so these trees became the image of solidarity, of something that you could build with. And so God is often spoken of within the Psalms as a tree, a cedar of Lebanon that stands, holler, that stands taller and higher than any other tree around it that can be used to make bigger, better, stronger things. Trees take on an even greater significance once the Israelites find themselves in exile. And the tree is a really important image, particularly to the prophet Isaiah. So I told you a little bit about the background. Okay, So Isaiah is writing at a time when Israel is taken away into exile. Uh, some scholars believe that part of the book of, of Isaiah was written before they were in exile, and then the next part was written while they were in exile. In fact, sometimes they call it first and second Isaiah. There is such a division between two parts of the book. But there was a really important image that came up that Isaiah used over and over again to describe a key principle. And that term that he used is this idea of the stump of Jesse. Now, who knows who Jesse was? Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. David was who? The real king of Israel when the kingdom was united and when it was doing so many great things and they were taking over the world, David was the king. And after David, there was his son and then everything fell apart. More or less. Biblical history in five or six words. Okay? 
So David is the king that they look to. In fact, Jesus is one of the things about Jesus is that he comes from the line of David. That gives him legitimacy within the eyes of the Israelites. And so, this idea, the stump of Jesse, uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, there are some interesting things thrown in here that based on what we've covered already should sort of ring a bell for you. The first one is the the, the image of a stump. Why is that so important? Well, because they're in exile, which means what has happened to the tree that is them? It has been cut down. All right? But just because the tree has been cut down, it does not mean what? That the roots are gone. The roots are still there. And from this stump that still has the roots, there will come what? New growth. You can, we can, the writer is saying, come back to the people that we used to be when we were standing tall for God. The tree has been cut down, but we can come back. And so every time Isaiah mentions the stump of Jesse, it is supposed to be a word of encouragement. We have not lost ourselves. We can come back to who we are. The roots are still there. And so he uses that image throughout. Jesus, interestingly enough, now maybe I am reaching here, okay? I'll now confess to this. Jesus, interestingly enough, was born to a father who was a carpenter and worked with wood. This actually is pretty relevant to the discussion, though, as we continue into this. He was a carpenter who worked with wood, and he often uh, used trees, plants, seeds, and images of nature to describe things that were happening in the kingdom. For example, from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Or this one from the parable of the seeds, from Luke chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. Now, these are just two examples of things that Jesus says throughout the Gospels that involve soil, seeds, plants, trees, and growth. And he uses those things to describe God, to describe the kingdom, to describe what he's doing, and to describe us. Yes? And when Jesus is put to death, he is put to death on a tree. But that is not the last place where we see a tree. The image is used in other parts of the Bible. And at the end of the story, when we come to the book of Revelation, 
Guess what is central to the picture of God's restoration? It's a stinking tree. From Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that interesting? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is central to the image of heaven? It is the tree of life, because once we are there, there is no more what? Death. There is no more suffering. There is no more toil. Instead, we live under the tree of life, which produces all the time and whose leaves are used for healing. Okay, so I think I've made my point that trees are all over the Bible. Yeah? I can even go so far as to say paper is made from trees, but we're not going there. The images that we see, though, are very similar. They speak of strength, life, growth, health, connectedness to God. But what does that mean for us, and how does that inform our story at all? Well, here's what I want you to see. We are a part of the story of God. And we're not a small part. We're a big part. And though it may not feel like it, each of us has a role to play in the story that God is telling. And maybe by appreciating what God does with trees, we'll be able to see ourselves in the story more clearly. Why? Because trees play a crucial role and the metaphor of trees, plants, and nature are often used to help us understand ourselves in relationship to the Father. In various parables from Jesus, as I said, the Father is often portrayed as owning a vineyard, uh, a place where plants can grow, an orchard, a place where fruit can be produced. And we are compared to soil, plants, seed, and trees. And Jesus knows how nature works. And to a degree, church, he wants us to see ourselves within that context. He wants us to see ourselves as trees, as part of a vineyard. Because God sees us as a place where the kingdom can grow, where it can take root, where it can have life, where it can produce fruit. And we have this one passage in particular that we're going to finish with this morning from John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, turn over there. We're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Starting in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now this is an extremely rich illustration that Jesus gives to us. There is so much in this that we could focus on and talk about, but there is one major theme that I want to point out to you this morning, and that is this. The key to the life that Jesus is calling us to live is connectedness. Connectedness. You are not just a tree or a plant off growing by yourself, doing your own thing, writing your own story that maybe someday people will or will not care about. That is not what God is doing in this world. Instead, you are a branch. And you are a branch that comes off of what? The the vine. The true vine. Now, I think the tree analogy is helpful here because sometimes for vines we think of just one little thing, but think about what Jesus is talking about here is something much bigger because what he wants, I think, for his readers to understand is this. We are a part of something. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We are a part of a bigger story. Now let's go back to what that story is. God is redeeming the world. We know what the beginning is. God created Man, we know what the end is, that God is going to bring us home, and as Daphne said so excitedly, make all things new. Amen? Amen. But right now, we are living in the middle. We are living in the middle. And the middle has an enormous but ever-true storyline. People are pulling away from God. God is pursuing them and bringing them back. God created us. People are pulling away from God. God is forever bringing them back. That's an amazing story. That's for so many reasons. That is an amazing story. God is redeeming the world and we are a part of the middle of that. We are a part of that happening. We are a part of helping that happen. We are connected to the vine and we, if we stay connected to the vine, can produce fruit that will help the vine continue to go. That will keep it healthy and strong. Every one of us in this room that have accepted Jesus Christ have the same central story that God has redeemed us, that God has saved us, that God has brought us from death 
to life. And we join in with all of those who were lost before us, whose story was, I was lost and in death and away from God, and now I have found life through Him. We join with those people, and guess what? We have the opportunity for, in the future, other people to have this same story. But Bryce, that's the problem, is just the commonality of it and all this thing. But church, there is no better story than this story. People search their whole lives looking to find meaning in something that they do, in some way that they proved themselves, in something they have accomplished, in things they have accumulated. And so often people find themselves at the end of the story and they find themselves dissatisfied because they look back and they ask themselves, why did it matter? What did I do? Who was I? There is no better story for us to be a part of than that God created us We ran away from him, but he brought us back. And that we have the opportunity to bear fruit, to change other people's lives by letting them be a part of that same story, by inviting them into that story. This is important for us. It's important for you. It's important for this church that we understand we are a central part to the story that God is telling. Your life is a central part of the story that God is telling. And you matter because of what was done in the past, what is being done in you in the present, and the lives that you will help change in the future. You are like a tree. You are planted by God, which means that you're a place for growth and development. You are nurtured by God, meaning that he gives you what you need to be healthy and strong. And you can produce for God. You can produce for God that if you stay connected to the story, you will help others make the story theirs as well. So what will our chapter say? What will it say about us as a community? What will it say about the lives that we have lived? Because as we fall in between the trees that were there at the beginning and are there in the end, we have a part. We are characters in the story of God redeeming the world. And we want to stay connected to that story and see what fruit God will produce in us. Amen? Amen. We are going to be looking at the story the story that God tells through his word. We're going to start at the very beginning and we're going to go to the end. Not verse by verse. (laughs) But in roughly 30 weeks, 30, we are going to look at the story of God. And here's the amazing thing. As we learn the story of God, We will see ourselves in it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing story that you are telling. And God, I can't believe that you want us to help you tell it. But God, thank you for making this story our story. That we are, were once with death, but we have found life. That we were once away from you, but you have brought us back to you again. And Father, we wait for the day where you will make all things new. But until that happens, may we continue to write what's happening next. Not with our own words, but with the words that you give us. With the purpose and the meaning and the direction and the help that you speak into us as we stay connected to you. God, the story is not about us. It is your story. And thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you and wants you to have his story, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.